From the Cairo Radio Newsroom in Seattle, I'm Dave Ross, and these are the Ross Files. For years, it was the biggest company you'd never heard of, Coke Industries, created by Charles and David Coke. And Christopher Leonard, spent you spent seven years uh, analyzing this company? Yeah, that's right. I, I became interested in Coke really back in late 2011 because as a business reporter, I felt that by telling the story of this one company, I could tell the story of all of American capitalism over the last 50 years. I mean, that's how large and how influential Coke Industries really is. It, it escapes a lot of attention because the company's privately held. But Coke's annual sales are bigger than that of Facebook, Goldman Sachs, and U.S. Steel combined. That's crazy. The result yeah. is a book called Cokeland, which uh, documents how they put this together. And I, I, I get the feeling, and, and you know, reading other books about the about successful CEOs, it takes a it takes a good lawyer, number one. And it takes a certain ruthlessness, right? I mean, absolutely. And that's definitely at the core of this story. You know, the real driving force behind this corporate and political empire is, is a guy named Charles Koch. And he's actually been CEO of this firm for 50 years. I don't know of any CEO who's had the job for that long. And you could call it ruthlessness for sure. I mean, Charles Koch is an absolute free market advocate. He he believes in the sort of pitiless verdict of the market. And that's how he's run his company since the 1960s. And, you know, they even go beyond the word conservative. These brothers, and particularly Charles, have a very extreme free market view of the world. I mean, Charles Koch is deeply influenced by these Austrian economists like Hayek and von Mises. And he truly believes that any government program only causes more harm than good. So his vision of America would be no public roads, no public universities, no Medicare, no Social Security, literally just free market enterprises for all of these functions. And they have been remarkably effective in in pushing the Republican Party toward embracing these views. But they must they must be doing something right by their own employees, because, I mean, if your employees hate you, you're not going to have a very good company. I know he hates unions, but. Uh, how would you characterize the way he treats his employees? Uh, it, it is amazing. And you're exactly right. I've, in fact, never seen a workforce as committed and as dedicated as is Coke Industries. And I've been a business reporter for 20 years. This is a corporate culture unlike any other. And it's safe to say that Charles Koch is truly revered uh, within this corporation. Hmm. Charles Koch has invented this philosophy that he calls market-based management, and and he says it's literally the the blueprint for how to run a company, how to live a good life, how to organize a society. And the people who work for this corporation embrace this credo and this philosophy as if it was some kind of secular religion. Now, what exactly does Koch Industries do? That's, That's one of the most fascinating parts of your book to me, because as I mentioned, I don't think anybody really knows. Yeah, yeah. This is a company that specializes in the kinds of industries that underpin civilization. It makes fuel that we use to drive to work, fertilizer that's used to grow our food, building materials, uh, the wall panels in the office building, the carpets in an office building, glass in in office buildings. It makes uh, clothing materials like uh, uh, Lycra and spandex and nylon. It makes the sensors in your cell phones. It operates pipeline networks. I mean, the list goes on and on. These are the kinds of businesses 
that people use every day without even encountering Coke's brand name. But the company has a hold of, of almost every link in the supply chain. And they expanded by doing it the the way that I was taught in school you were supposed to. You take your profits, you plow them back into the business. And in, in his case, he's he's used profits to uh, to buy other businesses, expand his business, and has uh, avoided completely becoming a public company because he wanted to keep complete control. It's it's truly a remarkable story in corporate America. I mean, the book opens in 1981 when a bunch of bankers fly to Wichita and try to convince Charles Koch to take the company public, which is common sense for most corporations. He refused to do it. Charles Koch has, in an extremely disciplined way, followed this very particular corporate strategy to stay private, don't pay out dividends, you plow 90% of the profits back into the firm. And I think most importantly, this company thinks on a long-term horizon. And, you know, long-term strategic thinking is in desperately short supply in America these days. Coke Industries will think on a horizon of two, five, even 10 years out. And that's made the company remarkably nimble and able to take advantage of opportunities that others can't. So people are now asking, well, is Coke Industries the bad guy or the good guy here? Because you have, I mean, you just had the, the what, the corporate roundtable, what is it, the Jamie Dimon's group, what is it called? Yeah, the business roundtable. Business roundtable, right, saying that we're, we're tired of the short-term thinking, we're tired of maximizing uh, profits for shareholders, it's time to get back to a philosophy of plowing your profits back into the business and, and helping your community, which it sounds like is, is, is the Coke philosophy. It is in ways, but I do want to point out that the Coke philosophy and the, what the business roundtable is sort of condemning, they share one critical feature, which is that delivering profits to shareholders is more important than high wages being paid to workers or basing jobs in the United States or having loyalty to the community. I mean, it, it's not a really clear picture. And, and, you know, you're asking, is Coke the good guy or the bad guy? And I, I'm really trying to not levy that sort of verdict. I want to show readers how how this institution operates, how it thinks, how it influences your life. And really at the end of the day, I believe Coke and this company that I call Coke Land, it reflects these much deeper trends we're seeing in our economy, where middle class workers aren't keeping the gains of their productivity, mm -hmm. where corporations have tremendous influence over public policy. Coke reflects these changes for sure. And yet you say he treats his employees well. So that, that confuses me then. He is not paying his people fairly? Okay, so this gets complicated. I mean, the executives who work around Charles Koch uh, would jump in front of a bus for this guy. Mm -hmm. But the picture gets murky. I, you know, I spent years reporting on blue-collar manufacturing workers who work at Koch. Uh, at the company's Georgia Pacific division. Koch owns Georgia Pacific. And what you see with employees like this is – they have less bargaining power than they've had. Work has become more onerous. Uh, internal safety data from Coke shows that the job is becoming more dangerous. Some of these employees are earning less than they did back in the 1980s when you adjust for inflation. So, yes, a lot of the managers and a lot of the workforce march to the beat of the same drummer at Coke Industries. But you do see a lot of the deep social costs of this profit-first motive. You see it at Coke just as you see it across the country. Well, then, being someone who doesn't like government interference, doesn't he see that if you don't pay your people fairly, 
and you force the losers of the economic game to live in their RVs, there's going to be pressure on government to start uh, establishing all sorts of programs to to help out because there just becomes too much uh, public pressure. So this is a huge question. Um, you know, you mentioned the business roundtable coming out and kind of trying to reformulate how it views corporate America. That is a direct response to the social instability, the social unrest, the election of populist politicians like Donald Trump. Now, does Coke Industries recognize this? I don't see it changing the Coke political strategy or the political doctrine at all. This is a company that still seeks to promote free markets to keep government out of affairs of business. I think truly in his heart, Charles Koch believes that market solutions, prices, and and free exchange are going to help solve a lot of these problems. But again, look at Georgia Pacific. I mean, the workers that I interviewed are becoming harder worked. They're miserable. A lot of them voted for Donald Trump. But on the flip side of the coin, that industry or that that business, Georgia Pacific, is having record high profits. Coke has paid down debts, and the results have been really good for the owners, David and Charles Coke. So, what do you think is ahead for for the United States then, when it comes to uh, trying to address the the very real concerns of working class people? As you point out, they elected uh, Donald Trump. Um, so far, the the effects have been that. Farmers are struggling. Uh, coal miners are still being laid off. Uh, steel workers are still being laid off. We still don't have a deal with with China. So eventually, prices for stuff we buy from China is going to go up. Um, what if if populism doesn't work for the people who put that philosophy into office? Then what do they do? Okay, this is how I see it, and this is one of the biggest lessons I took away from the book. You know, part of the the book here is an economic history of the United States, back from the free market era after the Civil War to the New Deal under FDR to the kind of deregulation world of Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton. Our political and economic landscape today is defined by paralysis and dysfunction. It, It feels like the country doesn't know which way it wants to go, toward free markets toward big government, all we have is this really bitter debate over that and paralysis. In an environment like that, where you're lurching back and forth and voters are basically just pressing the panic button every election, the people who win time after time are the entrenched interests who benefit from the status quo. And in the United States, that's the biggest of the big corporations like Coke Industries, and it's the richest of the rich Americans. They benefit from a system that's stuck in paralysis. You don't think that at some point they would develop a social conscience and say, since the government is paralyzed and is not raising the the wages of the middle class, by golly, we are going to step in and solve inequality ourselves. You know, uh, I think that is what they believe they're doing. I've reported on this for a long time. I think Charles Koch is a true believer in, in his worldview that we we need to push toward this libertarian free market utopia and that that's what's going to deliver prosperity to the vast majority of humankind. So I feel like if if the Koch people were sitting here, they would tell you that's where they're trying to push the picture. But, you know, it's been shown time and time again, Americans are not ready to jettison Social Security, Medicare, unemployment insurance and these basic uh, safety nets. 
that have put in to tame the worst impulses of capitalism. So where we go going forward, to me, all I see is a huge question mark. Hmm. It seems to me that the Trump electorate, at least the most dedicated Trump supporters, uh, put him in office for two main things, abortion and guns, and that the economy has almost been secondary because the the policy that have been passed, the tax cut, which most of it went to pretty much well-off people, uh, seems to be hurting red states the most, and yet that loyalty does not seem to have wavered. So in my view, trying to parse out Donald Trump's election is so difficult. There's so much smoke and fire. Is it this American first nationalism? Is racism at the root of it? Is it just guns and abortion? I'm not going to sit here and declare to you that that I have an answer. But here's one thing I definitely think is true. You know, Trump flipped the so-called blue wall, Wisconsin, Ohio, Pennsylvania. There were economic concerns at the heart of of people leaving the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party enjoyed uh, majority support for decades because of the New Deal policies that you know, Franklin Roosevelt put in to break up monopolies, to regulate Wall Street, to empower the labor unions. And under Clinton, the Democrats turned away from that. And that's an important part of the political story in Cokeland. So it's not a clear picture. There's obviously a lot of chaos and static in, in the in the electorate right now. And I think more than anything, what you see is a restive, volatile electorate that is just trying to get the government to work for the middle class again. Cokeland is the name of Christopher Leonard's book, and uh, among other things, as he points out, it's a fascinating insight into how a huge company was put together. Christopher, thank you very much. Thanks so much for the time. Remember that when there's a longer version of the interviews on Seattle's Morning News, you can usually find it right here in the original form, unconstrained by the limitations of a live broadcast. And you can subscribe so that when someone says, did you hear what was on Seattle's Morning News, you can say, not only that, I heard the part that wasn't on Seattle's Morning News. So my advice is to subscribe. And then when we talk to an author, a politician, an entrepreneur, an artist, a scientist, a teacher, a journalist, a celebrity, you'll hear every word. I'm Dave Ross. Thanks for tuning in.